today we have Dr. Jared Johnson, Dr. Leah Bonilla, and to Shara McKinstry, LCSW. They're joining us for a conversation on Black mental health. So Dr. Jarrett Johnson, he's a mental health clinical pharmacist, PharmD, BCPS, BCPP. Do you want to share what that means? Absolutely. I know it's a lot of titles. However, PharmD, of course, is a doctorate of pharmacy. So pharmacists before were getting bachelor's in pharmacy. Now they're getting doctorates. Uh, it's a four-year program. Uh, board certified in pharmacotherapy is BCPS. So uh, pretty much just board certified in general uh, medications and pharmaceuticals, as well as board certified in psychiatric pharmacy. So that's a specialization in psychiatry within the pharmacy field. Wonderful. I'm sure that'll have a lot of value in this conversation. So Dr. Leah Bonilla, she joined us for our first episode where we talked about her definition, identity, and purpose within the diaspora, which we'll refer back to in this conversation. She's a school psychologist, PhD, business owner of Bonilla uh, Behavioral Health, PLLC, and an independent contractor with counseling centers of West Michigan, providing virtual psychological evaluations and therapy services to children's teens and young adults. Very exciting. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about what that means? So pretty much my background is doing psychological evaluations and providing therapy. I got my doctorate in school psych, so my specialized population is from zero to 25, particularly helping identify significant problems, mental health problems, emotional problems, behavioral problems in these populations and providing the services. So I assess and identify issues and then intervene. Nice. And of course we have Tashara McKinstry, LCSW. Her background is in education with children and adults, providing mental health support through various services. Tashara, can you tell us a little bit more about what those acronyms mean? Yeah, so basically LCSW is licensed clinical social worker. So with my practice, I've worked in mental health therapy in the schools, doing counseling and addressing attendance needs and doing trauma work as well. And currently I'm working with kidney patients receiving dialysis. So definitely seeing a lot of mental health in that area as well. Okay, that's really special. I have someone close to me who is on dialysis right now. Wow. And Therapy is a, a crucial part of his healing journey, waiting for that transplant situation. So good on you. Thank you all for being here today. Obviously, this is Diaspora for the Culture, the purpose of this podcast. And we'll get into our individual purposes as it pertains to this conversation and the diaspora, but essentially just curating conversations by and for the diaspora. And when I talk about the diaspora, you can refer back to episode one, where we are talking about people who identify as Black across the world, who share roots that are predominantly associated with Africa and the Atlantic slave trade, which dispersed all of us around the Western world, specifically the United States, South America, the Caribbean. And so we'll get into first quickly, because I know uh, Dr. Bonilla has shared hers. And of course, I've shared mine in the previous episode. We can kind of just touch a little bit on our own definitions, identities, and purpose, and then jump into some questions as it relates to mental health and wellness. And I'd love to hear more detailed definition from each of you, Tashara and Jarrett. But we can start with you, Dr. Bonilla, as it relates to mental health how do you identify or define the diaspora? When it comes to mental health in the diaspora, I think I define it as something that is like symbiotic. You can't have the diaspora without mental health. 
there's a lot of mental health that's embedded in Black culture, that's embedded in our um, history. And I think it's just important to always remember that there's psychology behind that. There's a lot of trauma that comes. And the diaspora is also really resilient as well. So that's also a part of being able to have that conversation on the psychology of mental health and how that affects Black people in general. Yeah, you talked about resiliency in our first episode and that kind of being the underpinning of your understanding of the definition of the diaspora and resiliency. It does speak to the diaspora. We've had to come back from a lot of things and I love the how it connects into this conversation so seamlessly because being resilient comes with obviously having to navigate some of the environments that we exist in as Black people, but it also has side effects that are related to mental health. So I'm excited to jump into that conversation. Jared, Tashara, anyone want to jump in and talk about their definition of the diaspora and how that pertains to mental health for them and their understanding? Yeah, sure. So I'm not going to lie. I didn't even know what diaspora meant, right? I had to look this up. So when I went on Google, it said the dispersion or spread of people from their or, uh, original homeland. So when I read that, that really spoke out to me because this is actually a term I'm not too familiar with until Jackie invited me onto this podcast. So it's very interesting. When I read that definition, I was like, wow, that ties in hand in hand with the traumas that are associated with our people, uh, specifically people who are Black. I don't necessarily just limit it to African descent, right? Because uh, ultimately, you have Black people in all different regions of this world. And specifically, when we talk about the African people or people who were brought over to America in various ways, in being African-American, we struggle with connecting. A lot of Blacks from Jamaica or the Caribbean or from the Hispanic culture, they have a culture to kind of lean on. And with Black American culture specifically, we kind of get merged as, as just American culture. So it, it tends that we really don't know. We struggle with finding our roots and, and finding ourselves and, and generating new cultures and new traditions that tend to always be assimilated into just as American culture. So then it becomes a, a, a lack of knowing where exactly we come from. Yes, someone could tell you from the motherland. However, you really have a dissociation from the motherland to, to here because we just we're so far removed from it. And I think uh, specifically with mental health, we struggle with that because when you don't really have a basis or uh, a community you don't really feel necessarily a part of that represents yourself, we tend to struggle with overcoming uh, uh, certain situations that come and we tend to struggle with just kind of dealing with those past traumas. So I think this is an important conversation to uh, to be had. Next, we'll jump into our identity. And I think that you spoke a little bit to your own identity being African-American. I think it'll be interesting, even in this conversation, I think majority of us are African-American, but then Leah, you bring a different perspective to the conversation in that regard. But before we jump into that, Tashara, I'd love to hear about your definition of the diaspora as it pertains to mental health and wellness. Okay. For me, when thinking about the diaspora in terms of mental health, I think about, I know I'm maybe jumping ahead here, but 
I think about myself, Black American, growing up military in the South. <laughs> so that comes with its own issues. So Jared touched on identity, which I can definitely attest to being African American. We have to kind of, like you said, seek out our culture. Whereas other members of the diaspora, they have a strong culture, it's reiterated, it's carried on through traditions. Now, don't get me wrong, we definitely have our tra traditions, but it's more of us having to really seek and educate ourselves and each other like we're doing now. And of course, that comes with generational trauma and kind of having to really, like you said, search for your identity in, in the way it pertains to mental health. <clears throat> Yeah, I would love it if you just jump right into your identity within the diaspora and both from the perspective of like your cultural, ethnic, racial identity, and mm -hmm. also you are a licensed clinical social worker. Mm -hmm. How does that feed into your identity as well? Not just within the diaspora, but as it pertains to helping uplift and help one particularly with mental health, but just in, on a general sense as well. What I would say for me being a Black social worker is creating, the reason why I say I became a social worker is because I know how hard it is to uh, for us to find our voice and for our voice to be heard. And that played like a, a serious role in me choosing the field of social work and being willing to confront those traumas and even in terms of working, doing mental health counseling, I, I pick up a lot of secondhand trauma because it's also very personable. For example, me being a school social worker, I was at a Title I school in Hillsborough County. I see the difference in education as it pertains to a lower income school versus if you're somewhere in Wesley Chapel. Before we really started moving with the, in the military, like my parents were stationed overseas and they came back. I was born in Georgia. We came back to Pensacola and I remember like my first school was a private academy. It was like a whole different experience. And then when I got to public school, it was like almost like a culture shock from how the teachers treated you. It's like the books, the learning, it was a culture shock, even though these kids look just like me. I think I lost the point of the conversation, but I just wanted to touch on that. Yeah, thank you. I think your identity as a social worker, you being Black American, there's convergence, right? Like you said, picking mm -hmm. up secondhand trauma. I didn't even think about that, but mm -hmm. I can imagine like thinking about your own experience in school mm -hmm. as you're working and, and witnessing mm -hmm the trauma that these kids or certain kids have to go through mm -hmm. every single day, just some of them getting to school, some of them making sure that they can eat, which is probably only happening at school for, for some children. So I never thought about that, but that's really interesting. I would like to jump into that again later. But Jarrett, I'd love to hear about your identity. You talked about it a little bit, but maybe you can tell us specifically like what to you is African-American? Do you kind of brought to the conversation this idea of disassociating from the motherland? So I'd like to hear more about your identity in, in that regard as well. Well, so I, I don't, and maybe it's a perf, personal preference, but I don't really even like the term African-American, right? You had a lot of Blacks who were born in America, who were native to this land that were sold off into slavery or weren't accepted into certain tribes because of their skin tone due to slaves coming over. So I think 
it's even hard to say African-American, right? So that's why I like the term black or, or brown specifically, just because it really pulls us all in together versus kind of separating between uh, people who might be from Jamaica versus uh, Africa and then just kind of African-Americans. But back to your question, how I identify, I identify myself as black American, specifically as a, a black pharmacist. Pharmacy in general, we're the first access point to healthcare. You can go down any street, any block, and you can find a, a, a healthcare provider, which is a pharmacist, your local CVS. So I identify myself really as a pillar of the community. And it really started with my grandfather years ago, back in the 60s, he owned a, a pharmacy in Liberty City. And with that, he really was the only person in the neighborhood who was able to dispense medication because there weren't enough black doctors. The white doctors weren't seeing black patients. So he he really was a pillar in the community and he really provided them the access to medications as well as overall uh, health knowledge. So I really identify myself as someone who's trying to walk in that same path. And when it comes to mental health, I think that's where I can uh, provide the most benefit. I think the term mental health has become very popular in the last 10 years. Recently, when you look 10 years ago, there was a huge gap as far as addressing actual trauma, specifically in the Black community. And as through generations, right, uh, a lot of things were swept under the rugs, things weren't looked head on. So just really being someone to continue to promote that and provide education into the community, the Black community specifically, is something that I, I really identify myself with. That's perfect segue into something I thought a lot about before coming to this conversation on whether I was going to speak on it or not, because it's a personal anecdote and pharmacists being like the first line of defense when healthcare, the first point of access. And I feel so strongly about you saying that because there was a time a couple of years ago, I'm not sure if you remember, where I came to you with a question about a medication that I was on for anxiety. And, and I asked you like one question that was unrelated for a diagnosis that I have with ADHD. And you were like, no, that's not really related, but I do know X, Y, Z. And that like opened my mind and, and gave me so much information, just like that two sentence conversation, more so than my psychiatric NP had given me. And I felt like at that point in time, I don't know if it was related to race. I don't know if it was just negligence on her end, but they had my family history and didn't consider that or educate me before prescribing me something or while prescribing me something so that I could watch. And I went through things as a result of that. And we'll get into later, like the meditation versus medication aspect of the conversation. But I think that's like a perfect example of pharmacists actually being that first point of access to healthcare. And that quick history lesson about they were a major point of access to healthcare for Black people back in the 60s when your grandfather was working. Yeah. And I mean, even to add to that point, just not to drag it on too much, but I just thought about something. Um, I mean, there's been a huge distrust with the Black community in medicine for a very long time, right? So the only way that could be absolved was the creation of a lot of these historically Black colleges and universities to have doctoral pro I mean, to have pharmacy programs, right, for African-American students to go, as well as doctoral programs. So that was really the only universities that house such programs in order for Blacks to become professionals in the medical field. And with that, there's still a, a huge amount of distrust. However, 
just as pharmacists and as a black pharmacist specifically, the best thing we could do is provide our patients with the most information as possible. So they're fully informed and in the driver's seat of decisions that, that are made. And I think it's definitely still distrust and mistrust. And I think that'll be a good point to talk about with the meditation versus the medication aspect. Yeah, a hundred percent. I don't know if, again, like if it was related to me being black that I experienced this, I feel like it was like severe negligence, but I feel all the time, every time something goes wrong with the doctor, I'm like, mm, well, that's how it goes or whatever. Like they're, they're, that distrust that even if you're not educated on like the specifics in history, the syphilis trials where they in, injected black men with syphilis and all the other traumatic, horrible things through history, just in our country with black people in healthcare, Henrietta Lacks, like even if you're not educated on that, I feel like it's kind of ingrained in us to kind of have that distrust that I need a second thought, like maybe I don't want to go to the doctor. Like a lot of people I know who aren't necessarily history buffs still feel that. And I, I will talk about generational trauma, but I feel like that's a major one that we've all inherited from our ancestors. Dr. Leah would love to hear more about your identity. I kind of previewed that your identity is maybe slightly different than ours and one that brings a unique perspective to the conversation because there's a lot of people who don't even know about Black people being from other places, specifically South America. Please talk to us about your identity as it relates to racial, ethnic, but also within the mental health field. I think first off, when it comes to my identity, it's something I've always struggled with. And I had kind of even talked about that um, in the first episode. So I identify as Afro-Latina. Both my parents were born in Honduras and they immigrated to the United States. My father grew up in the East Coast. My mom came to the West Coast after she graduated high school. So I was born out in California around a lot of people who were from Mexico. And in that sense, that was pretty much what I guess my preview to kind of like life was. It was like, I have this identity of being Afro-Latina, but I didn't quite fit with what my environment looked like because there wasn't a lot of people either having these conversations or I just wasn't finding any of these people to connect with. So I really struggled because my parents spoke Spanish. Uh, my friends kind of made it feel embarrassing for me because they didn't understand how I was black and my parents would speak Spanish. So it was a lot of questions, a lot of side eyes that I had to deal with. But I think it was just more so because of the lack of exposure and just kind of information and education, which is kind of why we're having these conversations now and how we can't just put Black people in a box. All Black people don't come from the same place. Some Black folks have different traditions. Some Black folks have different heritage and lineages. When we look at the diaspora, it's displacement. Ended up anywhere. So I think that my identity has been uh, something that I've struggled with, and that's 
directly related to mental health. It made me feel different, even though I didn't look different. (laughs) So it's like, how did that happen? I was in a lot of positions to where I felt like I had to explain myself, kind of made me feel like insecure a little bit. So I think that when it comes to my identity, it's definitely been impacted. And my mental health has been impacted because of some of the things I've experienced being or identifying as Afro-Latina. Do you think that that contributed to why you went into the field that you chose? I think it does. In addition to being someone who always helped my friends, someone who was always considered the wise one, (laughs) someone that my peers came to for advice or asked kind of what I would do, There was that struggle. I dealt with a lot of anxiety. I dealt with a lot of insecurity because of my cultural background and kind of being ashamed of it because it was hard for me to have other people understand that. And I was met with a lot of resistance. Like I said, a lot of side eyes and things like that. And I think it did impact me going into the field because not only do I know I'm like someone who can help someone, but I also have struggled with some of these things and I want to learn more about how to help people who struggle with those things too. Can I add something to that? Oh, um, yeah. It's it's so crazy to me that you had to go through that, Dr. Leah. And it's funny because I, I do think that with our generation, millennials, you can even maybe say even generation uh X, the ones before us, it was never visualized that there were Black people on these islands in these different countries. So it, it does become surprising when you see someone who's Black, who speaks fluent Spanish and has a last name uh, that's a Hispanic uh, last name. And it's very, to me, it's mind-boggling because I've been to South America before and majority of people there are Black. I've been to Cuba. The majority of the people are Black. I'm growing up in Miami. Uh, I grew up around a lot of Cubans who were white Cubans, yeah. and they tend to be the most prejudiced ones to Black people. And I'm thinking, okay, Cuba got to be an all-white island, and it's literally majority people of color. And it's just very bothersome that that was the narrative that was brought over when when they come and, and, and whatnot. And not saying this is everyone. However, I, I did want to add that point because I was very naive to it as well growing up in Florida. And as I traveled and as I met other people just from more diverse backgrounds, the more I learned that, okay, oh man, yeah, we're black. Like we're all black, just dropped off in different places or migrated to different areas. Different black stops. (laughs) Right, exactly. Uh Thank you for sharing. Yeah, I want to piggyback off that comment too. I remember um, being in middle school or late elementary school and one of my peers looked just like me and he was from, I want to say Panama. And I was like, oh, wow, really? Because I just thought that (laughs) it was more white or Latinos and not people that look like us. And it was like, oh, wow. So that was kind of my like start of understanding how we all are similar with different roots. And like you said, just displaced everywhere. Yeah, I think you spoke about like identity being this big thing for you growing up as an Afro-Latin, but kind of in a different way. I feel similarly for me growing up in New York, I saw brown Hispanics. They were mostly Dominican, Puerto Rican, like in my own family, I have on my mother's side, a range of colors. My grandmother, she has darker skin that I know 
she's low-key bleached her hair is curlier my aunt who i grew up with she's more native looking with features that are like indigenous to taino culture but my mom her dad he i guess has french ancestry but is also puerto mm -hmm. So there's like this wide range and Jarrett used to talk about Cuba and like, it was a few years ago, the first time I visited South America, it was the first time out of the country and it was an amazing experience. Just kind of being in that new culture, I started having all these epiphanies. Like the first night I got there, I could not sleep. I just was researching <laughs> and I ended up finding like some like royal doctrines from Europe that speak to this like cultural phenotype spectrum in the colonies in South America in the Caribbean and particularly in Cuba and Puerto Rico, there were these doctrines that basically invited European people from rural areas, different mm -hmm. countries, Ireland, Italy, and said, oh, we'll give you land if you move here. The land mm -hmm. they stole, number one. <laughs> Two, in, in, in different countries, there were different people. Like, I would like to say, like, I think about it, like, they appointed these, like, mediocre white men to be managers, right, of these colonies. And depending on their own, like, views and racial, I guess, perspectives, they were either like, okay, mixing is fine to this degree or very strict about it. Obviously, in the U.S., mixing was very illegal from the beginning. Cuba, they kept things very separate. And that's why you see in Cuba, the phenotypes of people tend to be more on like opposite sides of the spectrum. Whereas in Puerto Rico, for some reason, there's a lot of mixing and there's this culture of, of like even and there's some problematic things involved in this but like this identity of like oh we're all mixed up we're all mixed up that people want to cling to but there's racism and colorism within that because it's like there's words that describe like yeah you're mixed but you have black features with light skin or dark skin with white features i think i came into my identity as an afro-latina later in life because i always felt like i was two things and not one and that has contributed like majorly to my own mental health and wellness and just like figuring out who i am and how i identify like for a long time it was like no i'm black and puerto rican but what does that mean racially obviously black but on my mom's side there's these things that contribute to the way that i look that there's a lot of projection from other people that I'm sure really did play a role into self-doubt. I was othered as a child a lot. So that gave me a lot of like psychological things to deal with. I didn't feel I I'm I might have not been included in black spaces outside of the home, but at home, me and my baby sister, we were the blackest people in the family. Cause I didn't grow up with my dad. So there was a lot of different kind of just perspectives being thrown at me that I I've worked through through the years and have arrived at this Afro-Latin identity that is different from you, Leah, because like you said, your parents, they're Black people from Honduras. My father is African-American, and then my mother is a, a, a white Latina with mixed up heritage. So like the way that I come to Afro-Latina, I think is, is just a little bit different than you. But I think what I'm saying is like, at the end of the day, we're all Black. And that's like the purpose of mm -hmm. the podcast is like our identities are important because they bring perspective that some of us might not even know. Like you talked about Tashara, like, oh, I was surprised when he spoke Spanish. That's because mm -hmm. they want us to not understand. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but separated. But it's important to learn these other perspectives.
And not to diverge from the, the organized questions, but I have a question, I guess, to everybody is when I was in Cuba, it wasn't like, oh, this is a black Cuban, this is a white Cuban. They're like, I'm just Cuban. It, it feels like really only in the West and specifically in America, because I mean, I live here, we put so much emphasis on this person's black, this person white. And then that led into a lot of us who are black and who may have not been black Americans saying, oh, I'm not black, I'm Jamaican, I'm Haitian, I'm this, I'm that. And it's like trying to dissociate as being black is a bad thing. However, it's just really just identifying essentially the color of our skins. So it's perplexing because I have conversations with my wife all the time because she's mixed, she's uh, Jamaican and Puerto Rican, uh, but I'm like, you're, you're black, That's right? So it's like you said, Jack, we've been separated so much and I think it's hard to kind of, like, if we were all to say, hey, we're all Black, right? No matter if you're Black in Cuba, if you're Black in Puerto Rico, you're Black in Honduras, you're Black in Jamaica, we're all Black, right? We all share similar features. We would have the most numbers as far as population. And and I'm just curious to see you all's take on that, because I feel like only in America or like in Western society, we actually separate like, okay, no, I'm not Black, I'm this. So I just want to kind of get your, your take on it. Yeah, I've had a lot of thoughts around that particular conversation because I grew up in South Florida as well, around Haitians, around lots of South Americans of different color. And then even in New York, there's this running joke that's like actually real, like Dominicans in New York, they'll tell you, I'm not Black, I'm Dominican. And it's like, maybe you're not understanding what Black means, but you're Black. And I think one, that's an education thing. The Black identity is rooted in, and, you, and I know you kind of create this disassociation, but at the end of the day, it's rooted in the fact that we were brought here and there's other entries into this, this side of the world than slavery. But a lot of us who look like how we look, who claim nationalities on this side of the world for generations, it's because we came from Africa. Like that's how and why we look how we look. That's why we are the foundation of anti-Blackness. Zoo rah-rah, if we're going deep back into history, they created this book to disperse around Europe that the Africans, they're savages and gave all these reasons. And that's the foundation of anti-Blackness and the, the pseudoscience of race. So for me, and I've brought this conversation to a lot of people, to my best friend, she's Haitian. Well, why do Haitians even come here and other themselves? Like, that's a Black nation, the first free Black nation. But y'all mm -hmm. associate with Black Americans, Africans. My boyfriend's African. And there's things that have been said, and I, and I always just get curious. And I feel like the younger generation is not like that. And they're trying to educate their parents and their aunties and uncles. But I think it's it has to do with how the United States... And the government has positioned Black people, right? It's like, we're identified as lazy, as poor, as dirty, all these things. So if you're coming from somewhere else and you're seeing that is the narrative, I think you're going to want to disassociate yourself too, just based off of that. Like, not from the perspective of, oh, we need to come together. Anything is just like survival, right? If you're an immigrant and you're like, oh, well, I don't want to be that. I came here for a new life. I'm going to try and be something else. So I, I get it from a survival perspective, but I'm definitely someone who subscribes to like the Pan-Africanism. Like you said, we're all Black. Unity. That's what we need. But yeah, it's a big thing.
Yeah, I think we're moving in the right direction in terms of people, various Afro Caribbeans being acceptance of their like culture or Afro Latinos rather. I know I used to be a, like offended when someone would look like me, like you said, they're Dominican. I'm like, but we're literally the, the same person. And I would take offense because I didn't understand it in its entirety. But like the older I got, I was just like, well, dang, you think I'm lazy. And I'm, I promise you, Black Americans are far from lazy between civil rights. Yes, like, yes, like, like that's why <laughs> they selected us because we're hardworking. So, but just understanding that, like you said, if, if you're from a different country and you're coming here and you're in survival mode, you're going to do whatever you have to do. In that case, dissociation. Yeah. I think that people dissociate for a bunch of different reasons, but I don't think they all have to be negative because mm -hmm. I've gotten a lot of people feeling some type of way for me identifying as Afro-Latina, but I also see myself as Black, like I'm Black. <laughs> but I do make it a point to when I am talking about race, when I am talking about identity, to include that caveat, not to separate myself in terms of if I'm just Black, I'm going to be perceived a certain way. But I think I just do it because I feel like it's dismissive of my whole culture <laughs> mm -hmm. to not include that little caveat. And it's not because I want to try to make sure that I'm better than or kind of separate mm -hmm. or dissociate, but I think for me personally, with just the language that we have in the world and the systems that we're in, I think that's just the best way that makes me feel comfortable navigating that. And not to put others down, but just to make mm -hmm. sure that I'm seen the way I feel like I should be seen. But I don't You're think holding. it's, to me, it's not negative because I don't, mm -hmm. I don't do it to try and like how some of the people that we've discussed, there are people mm -hmm. that are just like, oh no. I'm not black. Yeah. I've lived in New York. I've seen that yeah. <laughs> even African. I'm not black. I'm African. Like it's it's just different. And I'm and I come from and I understand the separation, but I feel like I come from it in terms of not dismissing a part of mm -hmm. my heritage and my culture. And that's why I feel like it's important for me to incorporate or maybe even dissociate or or have that that little caveat, but some people do take it to that they won't ever see themselves that as black just because that's kind of the system and mentality that they're in yeah as a black american i mean i definitely feel like i probably was definitely the ones that might have felt disrespected because yeah. i i and this is personal feeling um going to hbcu being around multiple different black people just all from different backgrounds and cultures i, I feel like it's it becomes a, a choose when it's a cool time to be a black versus when it's not a cool time to be black and now it becomes like okay i'll be black to be down with the brothers and sisters and the rap and say the n-word but oh, I'm not black. I'm I'm X, Y, and Z. And I think it, I'm glad that you shared that, Lee, because at times it did feel like, oh wow, you're okay. You you want to pick and choose when you want to be black, but you want to like run back to your heritage or your culture. But um, at the same time, I do understand now being with someone who is from two different cultures, you, you have to preserve that culture, especially your parents being from Honduras. Right, moving to the states, it's easy to lose your culture here. 
It's very easy. So I think it is good for people to hold on to their culture, hold on to their ancestral roots, Afro-Latino, from the Caribbean island, from even for those who are Asian, things of that nature, but also embrace their Blackness. So that is that is a feeling that I do feel. I'm glad you're honest about that because that's real. People really felt that way. But I think that it's important for us to have these conversations so we can kind of get that understanding and kind of hear each other's stories and kind of like some of that. With me personally, it was Black kids who othered me. <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. Because my last name isn't Johnson, it's Bonilla. Yep. They can't, like, people don't use yes. my last name. <laughs> so it's kind of like I can't even pass without mm-hmm. someone, like, why is that your name? Or having to explain things or just having just that extra conversation. So that experience kind of puts you in a mindset that's like, okay, I'm different, even though Mm -hmm. I look just like my sister. (laughs) It's so crazy because like the way we grow up is completely different, just depending on where you're at. So like for Mm -hmm. Jackie, growing up in New York and being around all these different cultures, and then like from us being from like Florida and California, where there's Mm -hmm. especially LA and Miami and and all the floors, like it has segregated pockets. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's very interesting to hear just kind of the differences of how your environment really impacts your image of yourself as well as just your mental health all around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks for getting us back on track. So back <laughs> to the mental health aspect of the conversation, because I know we can go on and on for days. Like the first episode, I think we went over two hours and it was a lot of us, but I feel like we don't get enough opportunity to share and have these specific conversations just in general. So it's always nice to have those like moments of like, I feel like that was like a speaking of like an agreement between cultures, right? Like we just Mm -hmm. solved some stuff here. Hopefully other people feel that way as well. But okay, back on topic. So the next question I have here is the difference between psychology and psychiatry. And I think that this is a big one that not just our community, but a lot of people don't really understand the intricacies of like what it means to have a psychologist versus a psychiatrist or to be a psychologist versus a psychiatrist. So I'll let whoever wants to jump in take that conversation. I don't mind just starting like a basic definition. So when it comes to a psychologist versus a psychiatrist, a a psychiatrist can dispense medications. Okay. That psychiatrist went to medical school. There's different levels and credentials of psychologists. Okay. So you can get a doctorate in psychology and there's a lot of different areas And you can also not get a doctorate and still be a psychologist and get a master's and things like that. But the main difference is the psychiatrist went to medical school and can dispense medications like the medications that we're talking about, we're going to be talking about. I think that there's a lot of confusion and stigma around medications and going to a psychologist versus a psychiatrist because of just what we're seeing and portrayed. Like every time we see something maybe in the media or something Mm -hmm. in a show, it's like, oh, they're going to talk to somebody because they're crazy or they are there. um, They have to be in a mental hospital and take all these medications and get zapped and get poked with things. That's kind of like what we see. So a lot of us, I feel like we kind of internalize that and we're just like, no, that's not me. (laughs) I don't have any of those problems. So that's not even anything I need to be thinking about. 
my psychology or my thoughts or my feelings or anything like that. So I think that there's a lot of stigma just because of what we see. And I also think that when it comes to access to certain things, we don't always have the access to like psychologists. Mm -hmm. I know yeah, you mentioned um, a, a good point to Shara earlier when you were talking about just the differences and the experiences of kids who have resources in Title I schools versus higher performing schools. And one of those resources, lack of resources, is the psychologist. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of kids don't have access or don't even know that they have a psychologist or there is mm -hmm. a social worker there. The only time you're exposed or seeing a social worker or a psychologist is when things aren't going well, when there's problems. Mm -hmm. So even when we do get our first interaction, it's probably not the best because we're having hard conversations about you fighting or you're not yeah. learning <laughs> or you're having problems with learning or reading and things like that. So a lot of it i feel like comes from our exposure not being exposed to just what psychologists do or where they are we don't see them they're not in our community and because certain communities have fewer resources we never see them so of course we're not going to know what a psychologist is versus a psychiatrist because it's just like what <laughs> i've never seen that i don't know what that is so i just wanted to kind of share because that really made me start to think about my experience in the schools and how in my high-performing schools, we, I had a lot more mental health support. We had behavioral coaches, we mm -hmm. had social workers, nurses, full-time too. And full-time means every day you're working in schools that didn't have as much resources were limited. So like I would have three schools that I had to serve. And that's like, come on now, that's 25,000 kids. Does that even make sense? <laughs> so what type of impact is that? So that's just something that came up. Yeah. And just the, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, just, no, I was, she, she kind of, it fed right into the follow-up question. So I just want to put it out there so that it, we can answer it as we're talking. But so it's the difference between psychology and psychiatry. And then what do you have to say about the stigma in our community associated with mental health treatment, both counseling from a psychologist and the pharmacology aspect where you would get medication from a psychiatrist. You're asking me? Oh yeah, I was just wanting to pick it back up for her before I lost my train of thought. Just the difference and like you're saying, like you're slit across three schools and your higher performance schools, you have your behavioral culture coaches and stuff. I know when I was a school social worker, we never had a behavioral coach. We always had behavior issues, but no behavioral coach. If it was someone present, it was very, we're only helping you for a certain amount of time. And then you kind of got figured out on your own. And then there were times like, well, we didn't have a psychologist for an entire school year. So that means how are these kids really getting the services that they need? So like you say, and then of course, when they're seeing us, now, instead of us being able to kind of just really focus on mental health support, we have to address everything else before we even get to addressing mental health. So I want to just piggyback off of that before we move on. When you say address everything, you you mean like they're learning problems? Their yeah, behavior. learning problems, reading behavior. It could be like things going at home. and um, Family. Yeah. yeah, family issues, food issues, um, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's some great points. And I mean, just to 
kind of go back to like that psychiatry versus psychology question and like how we look at it from like just ethnic group standpoint. Uh, so like the way you break it down, I mean, Leia, she, Dr. Leia, she explained it very well. A psychiatrist is someone who is just a doctor, very little mm-hmm. psychosocial training. Their, their job is to prescribe medication. They're experts in the field of medication, specifically with psychiatry, and they learn through experience through residency. So they learn mm-hmm. how to treat those patients throughout residency, and that's what kind of forms what drugs they like. Typically, a lot of psychiatrists are biased. They typically mm-hmm. like to use certain drugs based off their experience. So that drug may not be the right drug for you, but based off experience as well as clinical data, that's where they tend to lead with. Psychologists, on the other hand, they're more so concerned about restructuring your thought process in your mind. So really, and like Dr. Leia said, you have the different tiers of psychologists, masters, as well as doctorate. We talk about a clinical psychologist. They really like to focus on um, restructuring your thought process, right? Something called cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Restructuring your behavior. So those are, to me, that's more beneficial in the long run than any medication can ever be. And I know we're going to talk on that when we talk about meditation versus medication, but the stigma associated around both groups, the only time you see psychologists is through media where you're sitting on a big fluffy couch laying down while she's asking, how are you feeling? Right. That's the only really identification we have with psychology. And then with psychiatry, only time you see a psychiatrist is in a horror movie, right? When they got the white coat on, doing a lobotomy, these mm-hmm. old 1920 <laughs> treatments are, are like in a stay in the asylums and the nurse is putting the medication in the cup and the patient's taking it. So we have a very negative view of both professions because of what has been passed down through horror and, and other forms of media. And with us being black people aren't having that distrust with medicine we tend to stray away from it because if we we got to remember civil rights was what 50 it was less than 50 years ago we didn't have time to go to the psychologist that was white people problems like and we didn't have time to do that we didn't have time to we didn't have the the finances to to get a psychologist right so that these things weren't even heard of before until more recent times where we're actually being more vulnerable and open about our mental health and our trauma and our struggles. So I think for a very long time, we just didn't have the privilege. And then before then, we were people who suffered from major depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. They were put in asylum and just because their families didn't deal with them. So the whole concept of psychology and psychiatry and just mental health from a medical standpoint has advanced rapidly over the last 50 to 60 to 70 years. So I think we're still struggling with just the view of it based on what's shown to us. Yeah, I think that leads really smoothly into the question that I, I, I put in here. I was listening to some podcasts today to, to prep and something that came up was the relationship with how racism impacts your mental health. So I wanted to know if you guys knew anything about that relationship, whether it was from your experience in the field to research and and data that you may have researched. I learned some things today, but I'd love to hear from the experts in the room. Well, for one, how racism kind of deals with that. If we're um, talking about psychiatrists, of course, if you are biased, that leads to misdiagnosing 
or like you said, like Jared mentioned, them not really, they're only going off the, their preferred medication, whether that's, for example, Prozac, that's maybe a lot of their go-to because it has a long history. I know, Jared, you can attest to that breakdown. And we see that in terms of how Black men and Black women, when we're trying to be open about our mental health needs, such as depression or anxiety, we are often kind of looked at as angry or problem. And just to kind of go back to my school experience, I'm sure you guys may be aware, but our Black students are obviously more disciplined in comparison to their white students. So they're, they don't always get the opportunity to sit and process, okay, why am I feeling this way? It's your behavior problem. We're going to suspend you. And now this is connected to now you're missing your education. So that's like one way that is tied in together with racism. And, and to add to Shara's point, I mean, you're from a, a patient standpoint, even when you look at, there have been numerous social experiences where they would leave a, a black young lady just out in public under 10 years old, no one says anything, everybody's walking by, not addressing your Billy, but a child, same age, out in public, adults are coming up, hey, honey, are you okay? Where's your mom? Where's your dad? And that really shows, and even talking about police brutality and things of that nature, it shows yeah. that we are automatically aged up and mm -hmm. providing less services just based off the color of our skin. And back to Charles' point, just as far as being in the field and being viewed as overly aggressive if you're a black male or woman. Oh, you're diagnosed. Oh, you're you're not that sick. You can go back to work. Here's his medication. You don't need talk therapy. For all those play a role in that perceived stereotypical racism that surrounds just mental health and, and psychiatry as a whole. And even from a provider standpoint, being a, a black clinical pharmacist, you're working with, a, let's say, a white psychiatrists are attending, the first couple of times, as educated as I am, they even struggle accepting my recommendation, yeah. even if it's proven through database, because they're going off of their preference or bias or what they truly believe that is the best, the right choice, and they're not taking my recommendation seriously. So even being Black health professionals, uh, I'm sure we, we've mm -hmm. run into some situations like that as well. So of course, from a patient standpoint, that same white attending may not take that patient seriously and may feel like they're drug seeking or they only want controlled mm -hmm. substances and they can be really struggling with their uh, mental health uh, condition. I think that we talked about a lot of great points. When I think about racism and impacting mental health, I just think of pretty much just the system. So racism and just health in general, there is just a mistrust of Black people when it comes to the system of healthcare in general. And it's gonna be the same for mental health. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, we're trying to build back up and trying to fight against some of the stigma, but we have to kind of still not be naive to think that there are going to be barriers even in the mental health system that are not going to be aligned with what we need. There mm -hmm. are still going to be factors that are oppressive when it comes to our mental health needs, whether it be the negligence in the appointments or, or just dealing with prescribers who are just caught in their ways no matter what. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, well, that's something that we need to kind of 
always have in the back of our minds that we're kind of playing in the system that's already not for us. So racism is going to automatically be in that. What we need to do, I think, is educate ourselves more, which is what we're doing. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us are kind of coming around to understanding that mental health is actually important and we all have access to more information. Jared brought up a really good point earlier about privilege and how that is a part of the reason that kind of held us back in the beginning too, because it's it's not for us. So now that we are integrated into it, we still have to have in the back of our mind, the healthcare system is still disenfranchising. So us as providers need to have a certain lens when it comes to providing information. And we also need to make sure that when we are talking about racism, that we're calling it out. It's definitely a system thing. And we have to make sure that I know everybody hates this, but there's cultural competency practices yep. Yep. and procedures <laughs> <Or> like <they're laughs> and, <laughs> and things like that. So I know that it definitely impacts races, definitely impacts mental health and our um, access to mental health, how we are, are cared for. And then there's also, I think, some things that are currently changing when it comes to that, because a lot of people are getting more information around just their mental health in general. But I do think that we have to not forget about the system that we're operating from, and that directly impacts how people are going to be treated, in it, no matter if it's mental health, regular health, any type of service. Can you, just for anyone listening who doesn't know what cultural competency practices are, Right. So cultural competency is pretty much being able to consider people's different experiences and being able to incorporate a lens. And by a lens, I mean, considering being considerate of other people's cultures, backgrounds when you're making decisions. So when it comes to mental health, we're thinking about mental health, the decisions that are going to guide someone to be able to function in mm -hmm. in their life and have good well-being. So cultural competency is something that has been emerging because what we've been finding is that a lot of prescribers are stuck in their ways and they don't consider mm -hmm. maybe just the new identities that people are subscribing to or the different intersectionalities that may impact your worldview or your world experience. So cultural competence is a way to kind of help the system understand different identities, cultures, and be able to provide services, having those considerations in mind. A lot of us hate it because it's kind of cringe because it's like, you can't, it, it's up to kind of the person to develop a cultural mm -hmm. competence. Like you have to look at yourself and first identify how you may be biased how you may be mm -hmm. perceiving things kind of where your um, prejudices may be and, and being able to check that when someone is in front of you that's different from that and making sure that you don't bring that in with you when you're providing services. You're seeing that person for who they are and making decisions that's best for them based off what who they are and not off of what you perceive that should be because of kind of how you were raised or your values. 
So it's really self-reflection, cultural competence, developing your ability to look at yourself, your values, your beliefs, and make sure that when you are providing services, that um, lens doesn't impact who you're serving. Because it can, you know, if you're mm -hmm. coming from a certain place, a certain background, a certain part of the world, that's probably going to impact the way you treat people and the how you do your services just because it's your environment we're all impacted by our environment so being able to take a step back and understand that we may come into a situation with our own biases with our own racisms with our own prejudices and being able to check that before we provide services is pretty much kind of like what cultural competence is yeah one example that I I think was listening to on a podcast of like not having cultural competence is they were there was a story about a woman in the emergency room and she was like nonverbal or something like that. And they were going to have her get a psych exam because she was slapping herself. The nurse is like, she just keeps beating herself or something. And a black nurse came in and overheard the conversation and was able to step in and be like, okay, I'm going to go talk to her. And she was tapping her head because she had braids. <laughs> and like, wow. They would have said this woman to oh. a whole, yeah. Just understanding something so like, just you wouldn't even think about it, how important it is to just ask somebody. So I didn't know that there were like, I guess, requirements or like things that you guys have to do in the field. But that makes sense. Like, I'm grateful to hear that there are protocols for cultural competency. Do I think it's enough? I don't know. I'm not in the field, but I know <laughs> yeah. I had, I was at a endocrinologist a few years ago, it was during COVID and all the things she were saying was saying was like not non-factual, but she was like scared to see me in the room because I'm black and like she's like black people are getting COVID at a higher rate and all of a sudden and I'm just like why are you a doctor why are you here like this is weird like it was very strange but it is good to hear a, a bit more about what cultural competency is I had a very like elementary understanding so thank you for that elaboration so I I, I think we can segue to the next piece of it. And this is kind of where we bring in that meditation versus medication. So we talked a little bit about psychology versus psychiatry. And I think this kind of is the evolving of that, like talk therapy versus medication. Jared, I loved how you broke down like psychiatrists, like they're not doing psychotherapy. They're literally just prescribing stuff. And I remember like recently, like I had a conniption with the psychiatrist's office because I had to pay out of pocket for something because my insurance wasn't covering it. And they put psychotherapy. I'm like, this is a 25 minute appointment. I know that you're not providing psychotherapy. Like why are you billing for this? Like that doesn't even make any sense to me. You asked me how my day is and you're going to call that psychotherapy. <laughs> In all the five minutes. <laughs> are you kidding me? Pretty much, right? <laughs> I was very upset. Going outside a little bit of like the traditional or like medical doctor type of services or even social work services, can you guys share any anecdotes or advice about mental health and wellness as professionals in the field, but also as just like Black people who may want to practice your own preventative healing and wellness maintenance? 
you, you go ahead, Tashara. Well, I mean, I know being in the helping field, we have to be kind of mindful of our mental health. And like you said, things that we struggle with, because especially in those roles where you're working with vulnerable individuals, you get a lot of secondhand trauma and this can be back to back all day. Some days everybody might have a smooth selling day, but there's other days where you're getting hit heavy with emotional stress. And especially some of those emotional triggers that you obviously as a Black American or Afro-Latina experience as well. So I know for myself, making sure I have boundaries in place, not overextending (laughs) myself and making sure I have good boundaries at work, good boundaries in friendship-wise, and doing my relaxation techniques, meditating, just being outside and just soaking up the sun and really relaxing and trying to be mindful of what I can control, what I can't control. And in terms of even watching the news, it's almost daily now where it's either a police shooting, mass shooting, it can be a lot to take in on a daily basis. Yeah, I like to always say like, imagine if you're sitting at home and you're at your desk and someone comes in, they had both hands filled with dirt and they just dump it on your desk. And they say, Ooh, that was heavy. Now I feel light. Let me go, let me leave. Then the next person come dump a bunch of dirt. Oh man, that feels great. I don't have to carry that no more. Let me leave. <laughs> at the end of the day, you have a huge pile of dirt yeah, on your dirt. desk, right? So as, as mental health clinicians, that's what we tend to go through a lot. And I think it never was really talked about as much, specifically at the when I was working at the VA hospital, the Veterans Affairs Hospital, I dealt with a lot of veterans. So a lot of veterans tend to have a lot of trauma and working mm-hmm. with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder specifically, that's what will happen day in, day out. So the veteran may come in, they may go ahead and talk about their past trauma, feel like a weight is lifted off of them, but it's a transfer of energy. It, they p- mm-hmm. tend to put that weight on mental health clinician. So you have to have a level of strength. And you also, to me personally, you have to have an outlet. My personal mm-hmm. outlet is I go to the gym every single morning at 4.30, 5 in the morning. To me, I'm very routine (laughs) because if I'm not routine and I don't do that, I will lose myself. And Mm -hmm. I think you have to have whatever that is. For me, we look at it from a chemical standpoint, the two best pleasures of dopamine usually arise from some form of exercise, sexual activity, Mm -hmm. as well as doing something very pleasurable. Some people enjoy reading, yoga, all all those different types of things. So for me, that is what I need to stabilize my day. And I think if if you're a mental health clinician and you're seeing especially high levels of trauma, you have family trauma, family sexual trauma, you have all these levels of trauma and you're listening to it day in, day out, it gets overwhelming. So I encourage everybody to have that outlet. And of course, if you need counseling, of course, we, I think, I don't know, I think we're the most stubborn because I always say a psychiatrist needs a psychiatrist, but they never get one. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so I think being able to realize that and not just because we're in the space doesn't mean that we're not big enough for the second yeah. care that every other patient may need as well. Yeah. We can't help anybody else if we don't help ourselves. We got to help us first. <laughs> Absolutely. I totally agree with what you guys are saying. We do deal with people's problems <laughs> and when things aren't going well, 
we're kind of the problem solvers for others. We're down on the ground in the dirt <laughs> trying to figure it out. And it can be exhausting, but it could also be rewarding too. I think in the field, it's kind of like toxic <laughs> because it's like all this toxic energy, but then you get like a reward and then it's just like, ah, yeah. it, I must be doing something right. So I think that because we do that, I think for me personally, I've learned that I need to give myself more grace and be able to be okay with however my services kind of turned out because I've noticed that I've wanted to kind of always be like maybe a perfectionist or try to do above and beyond and kind of really beating myself up if like therapy sessions didn't go a certain way or if I feel like I didn't explain, you know, a diagnosis properly. But I like to remind myself that I can't, I'm not going to hurt them. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, with whatever information I'm providing, it's not going to be hurtful and it's going to be helpful. And my intentions are from service and providing the best quality of care. So definitely giving myself grace has been something that I've been doing more of, especially after the pandemic and things like that, because that was a time where we, we, we were really overloaded with a lot of people, which is a good thing, but it's also mm -hmm. very stressful and hard to manage and a lot of dirt, <laughs> according to Jared. So definitely getting that grace. Also, I agree, getting that exercise getting outside, taking care of yourself, like even having to schedule it. I've had to like actually schedule my self-care, whether it's a hair, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> even as small as a nail appointment or go shopping for something or picking up some flowers or something, incorporating some of those things to help um, me stay on track has been really, really good for my mental health. Staying in the gym has been really, really good for my mental health and not just in the gym, but just active. Like, I feel mm -hmm. like I've been walking more and I've been feeling good. I'm learning that I don't have to kind of go hard and do CrossFit and kill myself every time <laughs> I could just go for a walk and any type of movement or even stretching. Like I've been doing just stretching before bed or when I wake up in the morning and then I feel good because I'm getting that movement. I'm releasing those hormones, my body to kind of give me that extra boost. So those have been some things um, that I've been doing. And I think for others in general just some advice would be i like what tashara said focus on what you can control like that's like my biggest advice focus on what's in front of you focus on what you can control when it comes to your mental health and your physical health get some health insurance go to mm -hmm. the doctor <laughs> like we don't go to the doctor <laughs> and it's just like that's where we start like we have to kind of that would be my advice. Take your health serious, not just your physical health, um, but your mental health. And your mental health is directly related to your physical mm -hmm. health too. So it all kind of works together. So I would encourage others to go to the doctor, focus on what you can control, like your diet, your sleep, your exercise, where you get your pleasure, maybe distancing yourself from people or environments that kind of trigger you or make you feel some type of way. I also think it's important for you to seek out help if you are feeling some type of way, whatever that way is. It doesn't have to be help from a professional, but someone, reach out to someone you feel safe with. It could be a friend, it can be a mentor, it can be whoever you feel safe with. I think leaning on your community is also healing. We, as Black people, like, we have our healers <laughs> in the community. 
And I think our healers also know their bounds too. They'll be like, this is something we could probably pray away, or we probably need to do something different, or we probably should see the doctor. It's kind Mm -hmm. of like leaning into your support system could be really, really helpful if you are feeling some type of way or having problems. And in general, I think it's just important to just be mindful of your mental health. If it's not something that you've thought about before, take a second to think about it. Do a self-check-in with my clients. We do a check-in, one to 10, how are you feeling? Just like how you would at the doctor. How's your pain? How's your happiness? (laughs) Thumbs up, thumbs down in the middle kind of, and you can kind of do those check-ins with yourself and reflect on those things. Like, oh, okay, I'm doing good today. Why am I doing good? Oh, probably because this and that. I'm kind of just taking that check-in or if you're not doing so great, maybe you feel tired. Okay, I probably need to rest or I probably need to think about what I've been doing or I'm probably overwhelmed. And so just being more mindful of your mental health, I think is just important. Like if you haven't thought about it before, take two minutes to think about it. That was a whole therapy session right there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Obviously I'm not a clinician or in the field. I'm a marketer, um, but I'm a huge advocate for mental health. And this episode, like I've been thinking about it for a long time, having this conversation with some professionals. Like I myself have a black lady therapist I love. I've been with her for two years and she's amazing. And she's part of my monthly regimen for wellness and taking care of my mental health. I have a psychiatrist for the extra stuff. I'm someone who identifies as neurodivergent. I have ADHD. I have a family history of lots of things, bipolar disorder, anxiety, all that stuff runs rampant in my family, like it does for many of us within the diaspora, particularly Black Americans. All that trauma has resulted in a lot of things that have gone untreated generation after generation that other things have contributed to, whether it's trauma from being alive and and a, a human navigating the world during the civil rights era or the crack epidemic in the 80s, like just different things have contributed to not me just as an individual, but just at, at large in our community. Um, so like my advice is always like anytime someone comes to me with problems, because like you were saying, Dr. Leah, how like you're the person like people lean on, like I find myself because I've been in therapy so long, people go to the hair salon or the nail salon, kind of get their own therapy. It usually mm-hmm. ends the other way for me. I'm listening and I'm doing the, the <laughs> I mean, doing my hair because I just have, have done it for so long. So I always, I'm like, are you seeing a therapist? Have you been to psychologytoday.com? I can help you. You can put in that you want somebody black and you can put in your insurance and the state that you're in. I'm very on top of that. Obviously also working out. I recently found a way to get that dopamine fix that people with ADHD are always looking for. I'm a member of ClassPass. And so each week I commit to trying something new. Last week I did tap dancing for the first time. That was phenomenal. Like huge smile on my face. Definitely gave me the life I needed. Next week, I think I'm going to try belly dancing, like those kinds of things. Like you get your exercise, but I also get a feeling of like being a beginner and trying something new and the joy that comes with that. I also try to sometimes do my affirmations and stuff. I'm a talker. Like I talk with people all the time. That makes me feel good. And I think that, again, it's just really important, at least in my opinion and and in my like experience, a lot of people avoid therapy because of the fear of like unpacking things. And I've seen it so many times where like 
well, that one thing that you're refusing to unpack, like it's holding you back and mm -hmm. you know how it's holding you back, but you have this looming sadness or this unresolved issue that is affecting you at work or starting to creep in and you're concerned about somebody knowing your business or whatever. It's like, no, it's for you. Like they're a doctor mm -hmm. like, for you, like something that's going to help you. So I highly encourage, I have a lot of people in my family who are very resistant to that. And like some people take offense when I'm like, are you seeing a therapist? It's like, no, boo -boo, I'm, don't be offended. I'm in therapy. I'm not going to tell you to do something that I wouldn't do. And then for me, like the conversation we we're talking about earlier, me meditation versus medication, like I have been on different medications. Like now I do a hydroxyzine, which Jarrett's wife actually introduced me to as an alternative to anxiety medication. It's a uh, antihistamine that has calming effects. And that's something that I am so grateful for because it feels less invasive or like major than an SSRI or other type of anti-anxiety medication. Mm -hmm. And from what I learned from Jared a few years ago, I had been on a medication that based on my family history triggered some really intense reactions. And like, for me, getting that information from you was like a major turning point for me to just hear you say that because I was really upset that I, I was experiencing one, the anxiety because I had a house fire and all these things, but then like the medication made me feel worse. And so there was like this distrust brewing in me for something that I believed in before that moment. And so I'm one, just grateful, but two, I think it's so important to leverage your resources in the community to ask questions. Not all of us may be privileged to have different professionals in our life that can speak to different things like that, but do your research online, ask the questions to your doctors, be your own advocate. Like that's the most important thing that I have found to be useful is like, I ask the questions, I do research and then I go to the doctor. I'm like, Hey, I looked up X, Y, Z. And that's not only for my mental health. I go to the regular doctor and I'm like, well, what do you think about this? And, and a lot of times I find that you were talking about it, Jared earlier, like a medical doctor, they have their biases. Like they're like, Oh, I've seen this medication work. So I'm just going to prescribe this medication. Mm -hmm. It's like, can we talk about how my diet could impact this? Can we talk about mm -hmm. you know, different things as opposed to just jumping to medication. That's my psychology versus psychiatry, medication, meditation. Like I think they all kind of go together. Some of us don't need medication for some of our things. Some of us need lighter things, whatever it is. But I think that removing the stigma, if maybe I can say one thing, it's like, if you have a headache, you take Tylenol because your pain receptors, whatever the science is, right? So why would you keep yourself from getting the help that you need to be healthy in a different kind of way. B brain chemistry, neuroscience, that's physical health too. We call it mental health because it's inside of our ourselves, right? We can't see it for real, but like, I, I, I want our community to feel less embarrassment around things like that. And that's why I opened up talking about my family history because it's, it's, it shouldn't be this big secret thing. It's like, it's, it's just like Tylenol, just like a medication you would get from your primary care to help with your high blood pressure or whatever it is. Like you got to take care of yourself because like you said, Jared, mental health 
and is physical health. Like they're related. They're going to impact each other. So I think it's really important. I think you were spot on when you were talking about the medication. However, mental health treatment from a medical standpoint, diabetes is one plus one equals two. Hypertension Mm -hmm. is one plus one equals two. Mental health is like one plus one equals fish. You don't Mm -hmm. know what you're going to get. You don't know the response to the medication because it's so individualized. And everyone's severity levels just differs based from subjective information. You have labs to go off of when you talk about a lot of these medical conditions. In mental health, you truly don't have any objective labs. All you have is subjective information that you turn objective. And so it's really based on the patient and how they express that they're feeling. And when it comes to medication, just like in just in medicinal properties altogether, uh, a lot of these medications, when they were FDA approved and they came into, into market, it was all based on clinical trials in what we call medical experience. Unfortunately, as, as black and brown people, we were on the the other end of that, pretty much being the ones being tested, inducted into clinical trials, unwillingly given medications that we were said that were supposed to help us, but may, they don't really know the effect of it. So a lot of the information is accumulation of trial and error, especially in mental health. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. You know, sometimes it provides side effects, sometimes you get every side effect. And that's the hard part with the, the medical side of the, the neuroscience piece of mental health. We don't really know how these meds work. Don't get it full. Mm-hmm. We we have hypotheses. No one really knows how the neurotransmitters like dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine are involved in depression, schizophrenia, bipolar, PTSD. We can assume based on what we studied and what we theorized, but we genuinely do not know. However, with a lot of other medical conditions, we can actually see via organs. We only know about 10 to 20% of the brain. We still haven't cracked that code yet. So I say all that to also say, be patient with your practitioners when they are talking about medication, but also like you said, Jackie, we are in the most information time as possible. You have Google, you have so many resources to get the same knowledge we're getting. We don't have any secret books y'all don't have access to. We don't have any secret trials y'all don't have access to. All these, if all this information is accessible to you. And when you come with questions, it shows the provider that you're more integrated in your treatment. And that tends to let them take you a lot more seriously when you come in with an educated opinion. Because at the end of the day, it's your health. Only you can put that pill in your body. Mm-hmm. Only you can attest to taking medication. Even if you're institutionalized into a hospital unwillingly, you can still deny medication mm-hmm. treatment with you in what we call the Florida Baker Act. So you being the most informed and, and obtaining as much knowledge you can, listening to podcasts like these, having these high-level discussions, looking up the drug when they write it down in the prescription, right? All the information is accessible to us. So we have to make sure we put our best foot forward and understand all this information or at least try to. And again, you got your point of care, pharmacy, CVS guy right there. You can walk right in, ask the question completely free. So use these resources and use these, this technology and, and the information and the more empowered and more information you have, the more empowered you'll feel going into those settings. Yeah. I just wanted to add something when it comes to the medication conversation, something that you said, Jared, that's really, really important is that you got to be patient, right? Like you got to know that 
the first medication you try may not be your medication <laughs> or it may be your medication, but at a different dose. dose yeah. <laughs> and there may be side effects that you can take. And then there may be side effects that you can't. So there's a lot of the information that you said when it comes to just, we don't know everything. So we need that from you to understand that we're not just giving out magic pills. If it was that easy, yeah. we would just be sitting here all happy. <laughs> but, but it's not, it's very, very individualized. So I think that it's important to ask questions, do your research, and also don't be afraid to talk to your psychologist or reach out Absolutely. because like you said, medication doesn't have to be your first stop. Ask for a referral for the psychologist from your doctor, just so you can ask questions. You don't have to have therapy in order to ask me questions. You can just book a consultation. I can answer some questions for you. So there's different avenues that you can go when it comes to the medication conversation. It doesn't have to be that first route. And there is research that, and trials out there that suggest that certain medications are good with certain medical, uh, mental health disorders. So we do have enough information to know that these, these pills work for certain things, but it may not be the thing that may be for you just because we said so. We got both be open in terms of trying to figure out your right treatment. I also think that it's important to understand that you might need more than just medication. Medication, a lot of my clients come to me because they feel like they've been on a medication and it's not working. But what they don't realize is that it's not a magic fix. <laughs> the medication is not <laughs> supposed to change their life and like make them happy and like get them a wife or get them milk. It just isn't that. And so I find myself having to explain and kind of educate about the medications, like medications target symptoms. So if you're feeling tired, if you're feeling down, it's not necessarily going to make you feel happy, but it may give you more energy, more activation. So you can get up in the morning and go to work. So you can actually go outside and experience perhaps some vitamin D to get some more energy. It's kind of like, it puts you in a position to access the life that you probably want, but it's not going to give that to you. So I think that that's also important to understand too. A lot of people think that it is a quick fix and it's, it's not. Sometimes you may need more skill building, like with a therapist or social worker, you just may need maybe more information. So you want to talk to someone about your kid doing things that you may think are weird or unusual, utilizing just your community resources um, can help kind of guide if you're probably going to need medication or not too, because some people are going to need medication. You, you're not going to sit up here and tell me <laughs> medication is not going to be helpful for you because we do have a wealth of knowledge, but it doesn't mean it's for everyone. Right. And that's something that we need to consider too. It may not be for everyone. It may not be something that you want to do, but that doesn't mean that it's not going to work for you. It doesn't mean that we don't have research to suggest that things would be more beneficial for you or different types of medications. So I think it's also just important for people to know that medication doesn't have to be your first route. You can talk to your psychologist mm -hmm. and you may need more than medication. You may need um, a combination of both medication and talking to someone to help maybe manage trauma or build up your skills in different areas.
Absolutely, Dr. Lee. And I just want to add, sorry, um, but I think you hit something right on the head. And in most guidelines, psychotherapy with the psychologist is preferred mm-hmm. for majority mental health disorders. The only two are usually psychotic disorders or heavy mood disorders, such as bipolar disorders, um, which are spectrum disorders or psychosis and schizophrenia. But every mental health disorder, as far as depression, anxiety, PTSD, uh, OCD, the, you know, the, the, the ones that are more commonly seen in society, psychotherapy is number one. Now, if, let's say the issue where medication, real medication got popularized is really because before this was virtual-based care, you had to go into a psychologist's office to talk, mm-hmm. to talk through your problems, to go through those behavioral therapies in order to, to really work through your issues and work through those, uh, the underlying cause of your depression or anxiety. I can't call off work three times a week. How am I supposed to feed my family? How am I supposed to take care of my wife? How am I supposed to take care of my kids? Right? So that's where medications came into play. Say, hey, you take this pill. Now we can manage those symptoms, like Dr. Leah said, so you can go to work, move through society, move through that past trauma. However, you're never really dealing with the problem. Medication can't erase the problem. Medication was kind of chugging you along, right? Therapy and specifically any type of therapy for one, as specifically cognitive behavioral therapy, psychotherapy, it was really the premier first line treatment that is designed to help you learn the skills to work through that trauma, to work through those times where you're anxious, to work through those times where you feel grief and very, very down depression, to work through those times where you have that flashback or nightmare, the traumatic experience or the, the issue sleeping. So those skills aren't learned in the first session, the second session, the third mm-hmm. session. Those takes weeks in a time, months in a time. Like you said, Jackie, you've been putting in all this work and time, building those skills over your tenure of going to therapy. And we have to be patient when we come to treating our mental health. We have to really analyze the problem, really dive deep, not just look at it once, but going back to it, really reliving certain situations so we can move past it to understand that, hey, mm-hmm. the only way this trauma can hold me back if I let it hold me back. Only way I can move past it is by learning from it, digesting it, and trying and appreciating that I move, that I'm able to survive and move past it so I can move along. So I say all that to say, just because I think Dr. Lee hit it really on the point, is that I think psychologists are very essential and to me are the number one go-to people who can really cure your, I don't want to call it cure, right? But can really help you manage and get those skills to manage. Because I don't care what anyone said, if you've been depressed, you're going to be depressed again. We all die. We all go through things. Uh-huh. You're going to be anxious again. You're going to you have other experiences again. Unfortunately, that is life. So if we don't learn how to deal with those obstacles as they come, then we, we're going to tend to revisit and go through the cycle again. That's why you have a team of social workers, psychologists, counselors, pharmacists, psychiatrists. is a team-based approach in order to care for your entire mental health, not only just your mind, but your whole well-being. Mm-hmm. And, and just, social work too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Yeah, and I just like can't stress enough. You are your biggest advocate. With something is working for you, not working for you. And Jackie, I love that you said you've been in therapy for two years. And it's also I want people to understand, like even if you have completed therapy, it's okay to be like, what? Let's open up this door again because maybe there's some more things I need to process 
or I would like to kind of improve my skills on this because I thought I was at a good place with this, but it, it may be helpful to revisit this and increase those skills. Like you just and don't even be afraid to change your therapist. If you feel like this particular person is not helpful, we have not made progress in a reasonable amount of time and you're also putting forth the effort and wanting to address that level of change, then it's okay to have that conversation with your therapist and say, hey, this isn't working for me and you pursue something else, uh, another therapist. So. Yeah, it's like dating, like, like you said, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. If, yeah. <laughs> if that person on the date was a little too funky, you know, you, you may need to not go back to them, right? You can have a suitor. So it's the same thing with therapy, so that's spot on, Tashara. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to ask how you guys feel about, how do we talk to children about mental health? How do we, Black children specifically, in not just about their own mental health, but how their mental health may be affected by what it means to be Black today, what it means to be Black historically. One of the podcasts I was listening to today suggested the idea that research shows that teaching Black children about race, just talking about race with them, actually helps with some of the psychological issues that come as a result of being a Black child in our systemically racist society. So as professionals, some who have worked specifically with children, I don't think anyone here on the call has kids, but professionals probably are more equipped than most parents are, right? (laughs) How do you feel about all of this as it pertains to Black youth? Well, I think it's important before we address anything with youth, we have to assess our own level of understanding and make sure we're able to um, understand our coping strategies in terms of being Black in America. Um, in terms of youth, I think it's important to just first and foremost allow them a space to just discuss whatever they want to, want to discuss and also kind of guiding them with identifying their emotions, processing those emotions, whatever that may look like. We all have our different coping strategies. They may want to write, they may want to do music, whatever that looks like for that particular youth. And also just letting them know that you have a support system so they can learn that it's okay to address those tough issues. I know for a lot of us, especially speaking for myself, like we're taught resilience and that's wonderful, but you also still need help. It's also okay to talk about things and not just sweep them under the rug and just because if you're doing that, you're just waiting for whatever issue to explode. So, um, yeah. (laughs) I agree. We got to just listen to our children too and not Mm -hmm. assume that we know what they're going through because Mm -hmm. even though we all Black, (laughs) everyone has different experiences Mm -hmm. and different genetics and different environments and different just factors that impact their environment and their world. So I think with our children, we have to listen to them. We have to also teach and expose them to our history. It is rich history, but we have to have those conversations. Like Tashara said, we can't sweep them under the rug. We can't pretend like slavery didn't exist or it doesn't still affect us. 
or there's not still oppression in our healthcare system mm -hmm. and in our schools and in our corporate system and that there's not still disenfranchisement in our communities. Like we have to educate our kids in what's going on. And we also have to model. I think mm -hmm. that we have to model what it is to be black in America. We have to model being black and being able to cope with our emotions, <laughs> being black and being able to advocate for ourselves, knowing that we're in a system that is not going to advocate for ourselves. So mm -hmm. modeling when you're at the doctor, asking the doctor questions or doing research before and then taking your notes. And so your kids can see like, oh, this is how I kind of problem solve or if there is something mm -hmm. going to make sure I, I'm prepared to talk to mm -hmm. such and such. It, it could be to make sure that I get my needs met because they're going to be only talking to me for 20 minutes and probably and rush me through. So I got to make sure. So modeling, teaching about what it means to navigate as a black person in our schools, in our jobs, it's going to be really, really important using all the teachable moments because they're going to come up. There's mm -hmm. going to be moments that come up where kids feel disenfranchised, where kids feel like things aren't fair. And we have to talk about those things with them and give them a safe space to express that. Yeah, I think that modeling is probably the best thing that there is. My mom used to say things when I was a child, like, do as I say, not as I do. Mm -hmm. But that's not going to happen with a lot of kids. They're mm -hmm. going to see you coping with cigarettes and alcohol and mm -hmm. men or women and, and different things. And, and that's what they're going to learn how to deal with their own problems in the future, because we, like Jared said, we all go through things in life. So if we don't teach our youth and, and lead by example, how are they going to learn? So I, I love that you said that, that that's great because yes, we do need to listen to them. That's the number one thing. The youth are literally the future. They have so much more insight because of their perspective on the universe coming from a, like, even with a new job, right? You come into the new job and you're the new person you're learning. So you can see all the gaps and places where there is, is room for improvement. Kids are coming in, they're learning, they're seeing they're able to have this unique perspective that as adults who have been here for 30 something years just don't have anymore. So that's also great. And I think teaching, I love the wave of even on social media, you see like black parents, like this is how I gentle parent my child, some of that. And it, it seems so silly, right? Like, okay, one I saw a reason was like the kid was throwing a little bit of a tantrum like I don't want to talk to you I, I hate you or whatever it is and it's like when I was a kid that was intolerable right you'd be looking at a spanking for saying something like this <laughs> <laughs> but the the parent was giving her her a child room to calm down and then address like okay that behavior is not appropriate but like talk to me about your feelings and like some of that stuff is so healing to watch right because like we definitely didn't experience mm -hmm. that and I can't wait to perpetuate some of these healthy techniques for emotional intelligence with my future children if that happens but yeah that is just so important to listen and model I love that those are two key takeaways that I'm 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 sticking with
I guess in order to kind of move us along and, and wrap this up, because we've been talking for a while and I know we could probably keep going because there's just so much conversation to be had. The part of every episode is the definition, identity and purpose. And so the last thing that I'll ask you guys, besides just any resources, and you can kind of combine them if you'd like, is what is your purpose as it pertains to mental health within the diaspora? Just kind of like define that a little bit more. It's like, what are your goals or aspirations that you have as it pertains to mental health and wellness for our, our community. And then if you have any resources to share, books, audiobooks, podcasts, et cetera, um, we'd love to hear about those. Yes, I'll go first. So uh, I feel like my purpose is to provide like medication education to our community, not only just mental health, but also medical, just so we're empowered with information. Um, I feel like for the longest, we really didn't have access to information. That's what limited us from our growth professionally, financially, and just from like an economical standpoint. So just really just immersing and being an advocate of healthcare providers to our community specifically, uh, as well as modeling for our youth that, hey, this is something that you can possibly obtain. Now, every black person, there's a stigma that oh, all black people are broke or something. Like there are very successful black people who are not entertainers that are doing fantastically well from surgeons to entrepreneurs to people in real estate. So really just being able to break that stigma associated around that, specifically within black males, because I'm a black male, but specifically so they can understand that there are things outside of just entertainment where you can be successful in. Um, it doesn't have to be pharmacy necessarily. However, I feel like I'm in a well-connected community to find that for them. So really just being a, a role model for our youth um, and being an educator to our, our, our mothers and grandmothers and also my parents. Love that. Thank you. Do you have any resources to share, whether they're on mental health or some of the expertise that you shared today? So, I mean, the only resource I can provide, I mean, as far as like medication, so anytime you want to look up a medication, you can always look at uh, druginfo.com, I think is a free source. And you have Micromedics, Lexicom, up to date. Those are also relatively free sources. Sometimes I think Micromedics, you do have to pay, but those are, are guaranteed ways to look up information. Ultimately, all package inserts and medications are free. So whenever you do have a question about a med, if you Google the drug and put package insert, all the information of the drug comes up, the appropriate doses, side effects, the clinical trials that it was studied in, and if that got it approved. Um, so you also have that access to via phone or, or laptop. And then mental health, um, betterhelp.com. Is, is a good mental health resource, as well as things such as the Calm app, which also is another good utilizing source that you can use to help build those skills to, to manage anxiety, depression, as well as insomnia. Thank you for sharing those pharm pharmacy sites or sites where you can get medication information. I think a lot of us, the first thing that comes to mind is like WebMD or something. So take note of what those were. I think you said, what was the first one? Micromedics, Micromedics. Lefty Comp, and Up to Date. And those are specific drug ones that you can look up the drug. You can also look at the pill ID of the drug as well. So like, let's say if you ever fill the medication that doesn't look normal, you can put in the imprint of the, the pill, the color, 
it allows you to kind of look up to see what drug and what manufacturer that drug is from for your safety if you ever have any concerns. Thank you, Dr. Jarrett. My purpose, I think, is twofold. I believe that my purpose as it pertains to mental health within the diaspora is to help problem solve and cope with just problems. I think I, as a psychologist, have a lot of information that I can share. And I also feel like I have a lot of strategies <laughs> that I can share just to help with people that may be going through different problems and not just when it comes to mental health, but also physical health, emotional health, behavioral health. It's all kind of tied together. And I think that when it comes to my purpose, I'm supposed to help. I'm supposed to problem solve. I'm supposed to kind of be able to help you find your why. Like, why is this going on? What's going on with me? And what can I do about it? So I feel like my purpose is to investigate, to problem solve, and to help cope with whatever problems that may arise. I aspire to be more visual and put myself out there more as a, a Black psychologist and things like that, because I know how important it is for people to see us in these different roles and careers. And I think that that's something that I'm aspiring to do is kind of be more visual and put myself out there more in front of different kinds of people sharing information, just so the diaspora, especially kids, can see that you can be a Black psychologist. Like, I've seen one before. They exist. <laughs> because I had a realization in um, graduate school where I hadn't seen any Black psychologists until I went to college. So I think um, that's one of my aspirations, just to be more visible to people. And I have a couple different podcasts that I think are helpful. These are just some that I listen to that I think provide just very, very good, like one, two, three steps, like strategies for whatever. One is the Mel Robbins podcast. She's a psychologist that has ADHD and she's very open about her struggles and she gives a lot of research and science-based strategies to help people with a range of different problems. Can't Afford Therapy, that is a podcast that pretty much is a conversation amongst people who don't know anything about therapy and they're trying to just kind of understand what's going on. So I think it's a nice, maybe like primer to if you don't know anything about therapy or if you want to kind of see what a session may look like or anything like that or what may happen at therapy. Can't Afford Therapy podcast is three Black friends who kind of talk about their feelings and how to how they're going about dealing with their emotions and building their emotional intelligence. Therapy for Black Girls um, is a podcast that is very, very helpful with, again, providing just information and strategies for a range of different mental health problems. Therapy for, for Black Girls is specifically tailored to Black women, Black people, whereas the Mel Robbins podcast is more broad, just there's not really a specific focus on Blackness, but Therapy for Black Girls, a lot of the guests, on all of the guests pretty much have a focus in um, people of color, Black women, things like that. On Purpose with Jay Shetty is another podcast that's very, very helpful um, for helping just if you're kind of feeling lost or just kind of need some information about maybe finding yourself or if you're 
transitioning, or if you're trying to just find your purpose. A lot of us who struggle with mental health problems struggle also with purpose and finding our why and motivation and things like that. And I think that that podcast really, really helps with having people be seen because he takes a lot of questions from his callers and pretty much just answers the questions through science-based strategies and also with some of the guests that he has. Balanced Black Girl is another podcast that just helps with mindfulness. So if you're someone who is trying to maybe get into medication, not medication, meditation, or like mindfulness or things like that, Balanced Black Girl is a podcast that can perhaps maybe give you some tips to help kind of start your routine of taking deep breaths or things like that. And a couple links, Psychology Today. That one is one that Jackie talked about earlier. Super helpful. You could plug in all your information and really find someone that can kind of be super um, specialized. And then therapyforblackgirls.com is a directory that's catered to um, black and brown um, service providers. So all those service providers are going to be at the diaspora. My purpose is to continue to be a voice for our people and allow them to have the space that they don't always get, especially when working with my patients, especially on dialysis. A lot of time they just need a moment to just, like I said before, kind of like process their emotions and just kind of have a space because everyone is kind of busy um, and they don't always have that time. Um, so that's one thing I think um, that's important for me to maintain my purpose is to continue being a voice. Um, allowing others to have a space to express their emotions. Um, as far as long-term aspirations, I am working towards more of the macro side of social work. So in terms of being in corporations and that way, I, I can really move towards like policy implementation in order for those changes to be in place, they need to have more people that look like us in a nutshell. Dr. Leah, you touched on all the great podcasts that get on Therapy for Black Girls. That is a good one. I pulled this one from the BIPOC Project Mental Health Resource Guide, and I think it's good for men. Let's talk, bro. So it basically is on Black masculinity, and I think, especially for our men, like they also need a space. So I think that's a good resource. And of course, um, like you said, talk space and better help are pretty good resources as well. Let's talk, bro. I'm writing it down. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I, I haven't heard of that one. That's a good one. Yeah, one of my friends actually mentioned to me, so I was like, let me make a mental note of that. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much, Dr. Leah, Tashara, Jared. Again, I, I appreciate you guys joining us. What a great conversation on mental health. Like we'd have another one or more. I know. Thank you so much <laughs> for being so open and sharing. I know that there's going to be a lot of little nuggets in here that help people. I know I received some. So thank you from myself, but also for all the people who will listen eventually. Yeah, it was nice to thank meet you guys me. and have a conversation. I really appreciate you guys being open and us being able to listen to each other and kind of really see each other too. I, I think that this is really, really productive and I'm really grateful to be a part of it. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. It was a pleasure meeting you, other, uh, you lovely ladies. And, you know, I think you all are very intelligent and um, you know, I, I really enjoyed the conversation we had today. 
Yeah. I can't wait to do it again. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> no problem. Enjoy. Have a good night. Take care. Bye.